It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 388 for April 13th, 2014. This week, maybe you heard about Heartbleed and you wonder why you need to change critical passwords yet again. Security and privacy were two topics at a special South by Southwest session, and we'll listen to some of the main points. The Windows 8.1 update arrived this week, and maybe it's enough to win over some of the naysayers. In short circuits, two very short accounts are rolled into one, bad news for Intel employees in Costa Rica, and Microsoft is a step closer to acquiring Nokia. Security researchers have identified a flaw in the encryption technology that's used to securely transmit data via the Internet. This could affect email and web-based communications, including websites operated by financial institutions. You know the drill. Change your passwords. This aren't even comes with a catchy name, Heartbleed. And although it was just discovered recently by the good guys, it's considered to be a very serious problem because it has existed for more than two years. It's unknown how many bad guys might have found it in the interim. It's also unknown whether anyone has successfully used the exploit because using it would leave virtually no traces. Hence the recommendation to change your password for all critical sites, including those dealing with financial issues or medical data. Two years ago, a programmer made an error in the open SSL code, which is used by many websites that need to provide the secure sockets layer, or SSL, protocol. Some bugs can remain unnoticed for months or years. Years, in this case. OpenSSL is an open-source routine. That means that dozens or hundreds of developers might donate their time to the project. What's a bit surprising, given the number of people who have seen and worked on this code, is that the flaw wasn't discovered for two years. The bug was located in what's called the Heartbeat Protocol, hence the name Heartbleed. Heartbeat is intended to keep the communication channel active. It does this by communicating periodically with the other computer so that the session isn't automatically terminated. The code that controls this is not in the main part of the code, but in a relatively obscure section. And that's probably why it was missed, because it's not reviewed very often. There is some good news, though. The flaw is believed to affect only a few of the busiest websites, The chief technology officer at security firm Qualys, Wolfgang Kandik, says that perhaps only about 600 of the 10,000 most popular websites were vulnerable. The threat is thought to be more severe at smaller sites that use common open-source encryption software, though. Researchers at Google and Finland's Codenomicon almost simultaneously found the flaw. It affects the open SSL application that creates secure connections. A connection that might have appeared to be secure was still subject to snooping, according to researchers. That is, the website URL might say HTTPS instead of HTTP, and the browser's secure connection icon, often a little lock, might be displayed, even if the connection wasn't entirely secure. OpenSSL was patched within days, but rolling the patch out to all websites, and then depending on website operators to recertify security keys, will take some time. 
particularly now that the exploit has been made public, changing passwords would be a very good precaution. But before you do that, hold on, wait just a moment. If you're curious about the sites that you visit frequently, and you should be, CNET has a very good list. You'll find a link on the TankBiter Worldwide website to the CNET list. You need to check that, and before you change your password, confirm that their system has been updated. You can also check sites you use by running the URL through a site tester at filehippo.io. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, too. Note that if you try this with TechBiter.com, you'll see a disturbing message that says, TLS, Oversized Record Received with Length, 20,291. Sounds a little scary, but this isn't a problem because TechBiter doesn't have usernames or passwords, and although StartTLS is available on the server... It hasn't been implemented. So the warning applies only to sites that have usernames and passwords, not to TechBiter Worldwide. When you find a site that ran the flawed code, make sure that the flaw has been patched, and then change your password for the site. Don't bother changing your passwords until the site has been patched, though. And if you've used any commercial sites, keep an eye on your credit card statements for any unexpected charges. South by Southwest is the annual music, film, and interactive conference and festival held in Austin. This year, the owners of GigaNews, Golden Frog, Data Foundry, and Texas.net hosted a program to discuss the current state of privacy on the Internet. The hour-and-a-half-long program is too long to include on this program, but I'd like to share some of the highlights with you. If you'd like to hear the entire event, you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the YouTube version of it. Somehow, privacy has become a political issue, and I don't understand that. Ron Yokobitis, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Golden Frog, Giga News, Data Foundry, and TexasNet, is clearly no bleeding-heart liberal, not by any stretch of the imagination. As the host of the conference, he noted that it's not conservatives versus liberals, or Democrats versus Republicans, and it's also not just government surveillance, but business surveillance also that's a concern. These people here in Texas... We think a little differently, and we think we're open, free, and we don't want you getting in our chilies. Okay? So Representative Hughes, Carona, and a few, you know, that, that's the cabal uh, in our legislature, and it's Democrats and Republicans. This, this happens. We've got good Republican and a good Democrat because, you know, we've got to get folks talking about it. There's a commonness in all of this. The conference brought together several activists from Washington, Yokobitis, and a Republican member of the Texas legislature. Kevin Bankston, policy director for the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute. Evan Greer, campaign manager for Fight for the Future. Representative Brian Hughes, Republican member of the Texas House of Representatives. Ali Sternberg, public policy counsel at Computer and Communications Industry Association. And Ron Yokobitis, the co-founder and co-CEO, as I noted, of Golden Frog, Giga News, Data Foundry, and TexasNet. The conference started by addressing the current privacy situation. Evan Greer of Fight for the Future stressed that concerns about privacy aren't new. One thing that we're seeing is that people have a strong understanding of what's happening with the NSA, since that's been such a hot-button issue in the media. But it's important that we connect that to the other surveillance that's been going on for years and years and recognize that a lot of this isn't new. 
uh, and that you know, we have to really look at the other governmental agencies, uh, corporations, and uh, people outside the U.S. that are surveilling us, and that protecting privacy uh, isn't about just you know, fixing one thing that the NSA is doing. It's about changing our entire culture about how we think about our data, how we think about the things that we put out there in the world, and whether it's okay for people to aggregate them and uh, you know, define us based on the patterns in that data. So I think there's definitely greater understanding and people are learning about things that they can do. Um, but I think we have a long way to go to connect this and uh, get everyone to understand the big picture. That's Evan Greer of Fight for the Future. And Kevin Bankston of the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute said that in the past year, people overall have become more aware of the concerns. And although it seems the situation is bleak, he thinks it's actually now better than it has been. Where are we on privacy? I, I think we're in a bad way, but we're actually in a much better way than we have been. Working at EFF, where we focused a lot on government surveillance, and the last time the NSA surveillance programs came to light back in 2005, 2006, we spent years, and frankly, my friends back at EFF are still beating their heads against the wall of secrecy that surrounded NSA surveillance. Uh, and it was an incredibly frustrating slog. And to see the, the, the sort of uh, floodgates open up, and for all that stuff that we said was true, like, you know, actually the NSA has tapped into our domestic backbone and just sucking everything up and running weird filtering on it. Like, people were like, where's your proof? Where's your proof? Well, we finally have the proof. We're seeing a lot more transparency from the companies, not only about national security surveillance, but about regular law enforcement surveillance, stuff we've been trying to get reform on for years, either on the Hill or here in Texas, with some success. Thank you, Texas. And we're seeing, finally, major mainstream media spending a lot of resources trying to explain these issues to us. Uh, for example, like the Wall Street Journal, its multi-year What Do They Know series, sort of detailing like all the different apps that are leaking information about you. And so I think we now know enough to know that we're in a really bad spot and that collective action is necessary to preserve our autonomy and our ability to maintain some level of privacy in our thought and our action and our association as we move into a really exciting, exciting but kind of horrifying 21st century. So that may not sound like a message of hope, but it really is. We know more than we've ever known before, and we know more than ever before how badly we need to act and act now. That's Kevin Bankston of the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute. Although most of the concerns expressed now regard government surveillance, that's not the only concern. Ron Yokobitis, who has attended many South by Southwest conferences, says that he is equally concerned about commercial surveillance. And he talked about experiences he's had in previous years at the program. Everybody was wanting to, young kids are coming up to me with their latest social networking app. And here, try it. It's free. Just put it on your iPhone. And I said, I don't want your damn spyware on my phone. <laughs> and, you know, they look at me quizzically. That was before Snowden. I don't think I would get that quizzical look today from the free lunch bunch. You know, I call them. You know, it's a free lunch on the Internet. There's no free lunch on the Internet. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's surveillance society we have. And these apps are, are surveilling you. So here it's free. Think about free. The price is very high. It's your liberty. It's your property because your information is property. And you're giving it away. It's very valuable. So I think there's a, uh, and when the government does it, they're taking your property without due process. So we got a real civil liberties Fifth Amendment issue here. Besides Fourth Amendment, you just got to realize 
how valuable you are and what you think and what you do. Ron Yokobitis, he's the host of the program. Still, it's government surveillance that is the hot topic button for many, and one way to mitigate surveillance is with tools that provide security. In general, these are applications that encrypt data when it's on a hard disk, that would be data at rest, or when it's being transmitted, data on the wire, in other words. The primary problem cited by Fight for the Future's Evan Greer is that those encryption tools are very hard to use. Clearly there's some reforms that we can push for that are necessary um, and there's sort of a, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. If we can, you know, raise the bar for privacy, that's going to help everyone um, but it will disproportionately help those who've been more greatly targeted by surveillance. Um, but I think we can also work on this with technology and making crypto tools, making tools that protect our privacy, not only widely accessible and, and affordable, but also understandable and usable by the general public and not just by people who have you know, a great deal of techno technical ability. I myself am not a technologist. Uh, you know, I work as an activist, but I've been able to learn this stuff by having people teach it to me. But if we make it more accessible, we make it more usable, and we make it a collective experience where it's not just I'm protecting myself, but that each of us are protecting each other because there's safety in numbers. The more of us that use these types of tools, uh, the less that they can spy on all of us and the safer we all are. Greer says that many in what might be called the privacy community address surveillance as a violation of Fourth Amendment rights. But Greer says it's also a First Amendment violation. The Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but on probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. And of course, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law regarding an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Privacy is not about whether you have something to hide. It's about your right and your ability to be yourself and express yourself without the fear that someone's looking over your shoulder and that you might be punished by the government for, your, for being yourself whatever that may be. And so I think, you know, there's definitely been court cases, but absolutely this type of surveillance is chilling our ability to freely express ourselves. To, it's chilling free speech. It's chilling journalism. And so absolutely we should definitely be tackling this from a First Amendment perspective as well as a Fourth Amendment perspective. Evan Greer of Fight for the Future. Regarding government surveillance, the government now allows companies who have been asked or ordered to provide information to the government to describe publicly what they have been asked or ordered to release. But there are significant limitations. Google was the first to issue a transparency report back in 2010, I suppose. And, you know, we've seen an enormous amount of, of development. A year ago last week, Google, Twitter, Dropbox, that was pretty much it in terms of transparency reporting. And they were only reporting on law enforcement requests although doing a pretty granular job of it and giving us a fairly good idea of the scope of government access to our data in law enforcement investigations at their services. No one was able to report on national security requests because they were legally forbidden to. A year ago this past Wednesday, 
Google was the first company to issue a report that talked about how many national security letters they get. These are secret subpoenas from the FBI for subscriber information. Um, And they, they were able to get a deal with the DOJ. The DOJ said, we won't prosecute you if you choose to publish how many national security letters you get in a range of 1,000. And so they can report if they got 0 to 999 or 1,000 to 1999 NSLs. Microsoft made a similar deal a month later. This is not all the granularity we want, but it did serve a purpose. It actually, to me, as someone who's been working NSL issues for over a decade, was reassuring. It was like, wow, okay, they are receiving fewer NSLs than I feared, and it's affecting fewer users than I feared. Flash forward to June, Snowden, boom goes the dynamite, everything's crazy. It is being reported or misreported that the NSA has direct access to all these companies' servers, untrammeled access to whatever they want. The companies are immediately denying, saying that's not true, but we are gagged from telling you more about it, which has started a year-long fight of the companies and us in civil society pressing the government to let them say more. We've had some success, some success, The DOJ has finally agreed after litigation, a bunch of legislation being introduced, to let the companies say, like they did Microsoft and Google, how many NSLs they get, but also how many FISA court orders they get. Not to be too wonky, but FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, is the law that primarily governs intelligence investigations in this country. The FISA court issues a wide variety of different types of orders. They issue secret wiretaps, secret pen registers, which is tracking who's talking to who and when access to stored content, access to stored records, and then the big boogeyman 702, which is the big programmatic wiretapping programs that we really still don't understand the scale of. That's what PRISM is. Uh, That's also what the tapping into the fiber is. And the DOJ agreed to let the companies say how many orders they've received from the FISA court, but not breaking out the type, and having to range it in ranges of 1,000. That has not given us a lot of more of a window into what's going on. And in fact, it's been somewhat misleading because the one thing that that doesn't include is bulk orders. The government basically lawyerly worded their words so that what was agreed to was if you are reporting on the FISA orders you receive, you can report on the number that you receive and the number of accounts targeted in the orders, not the number of accounts affected in the orders, not the number of accounts whose data you're handing over, but the number targeted. So AT&T publishes a report following these rules. AT&T, who we know is getting bulk records requests that impact every freaking user of AT&T. And you know what their report says? That the orders affected less than 2,000 people. That's Evan Greer. And what do you people want? That's a common refrain from those who seem not to understand the implications of our loss of privacy to both government and business interests. So what do they want? Kevin Bankston of the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute explains. Go to weneedtoknow.info. That's a page run by the Center for Democracy and Technology. And that is where the companies and civil society got together to lay out very specifically in a letter exactly what they want. And what exactly we all want is the right to say the specific number of requests we've received under every specific legal authority. Please don't make us bucket them into one bucket and the number of users affected by each of those and the type of data requested. That is what we are asking for. That is our ultimate goal. Anything that does not get to that goal is not enough. And we have practically every major internet company and every major civil society group, free speech group, privacy group on record saying that is what we need and want for us to have an accountable democracy. 
Those are some of the excerpts from the Privacy and Security Conference that ran outside the South by Southwest Conference in Austin this year. Now is the time to speak up for privacy, security, and net neutrality. If you wait, there might not be anything to speak up for. Well, the Windows 8.1 update is here, and it is big, 2,000 megabytes. Yes, that is 2 gigabytes. It's a cumulative update for Windows 8.1 that continues to streamline the interface and support more devices, enhance security, speed system operations, and improve reliability. What gets the most attention, in part because these are the features that Microsoft enthusiastically points out, are the ones designed to make happy those people who will never be made happy. This week, PC World put it this way, The Windows 8.1 update should woo over all but the most obstinate of the PC faithful. The article points out that Windows 8.1 is now a desirable operating system, even for die-hard keyboard and mouse users. And it says there is little reason to avoid Windows 8 now. Not in my opinion that there ever was. If you already have Windows 8.1, you need to install the Windows 8.1 update soon. If you don't, Windows Update will no longer apply patches to your system starting with next month's patches. If you have installed Windows 8 but have not updated to Windows 8.1, you'll still receive patches. Let's get one thing straight about the terminology here. First, there was Windows 8. This was followed by the Windows 8 update with a lowercase u, and it became Windows 8.1. The new version is called Windows 8.1 Update, with a capital U. You can see how this might be just a little confusing. Some might even think that Microsoft has revived the old who's on first routine. Sadly, no, they're just not very good at naming things. The name Metro, remember, was shot down for the touch interface, and they had to withdraw SkyDrive recently and rename it OneDrive, I suppose Windows 8.1 Update, with a capital U, is safe enough, but couldn't they have called it Windows 8.2? Does somebody in Redmond think they're going to run out of decimal numbers? Apple's been running OS 10, 10 point something, for nearly 15 years now, and I fully expect that 100 years from now they'll have OS 10, 10.137. I wondered, would it be okay for the purposes of this report if I just called it Windows 8.2? I mentioned that idea to my wife, and she told me I'm stupid. Well, I already knew that. Repetition is a wonderful thing, after all. But it caused me to consider another option. Here's what I mean when I say the following. If I say Windows 8, that's the original version. If I say Windows 8.1, that's the first update to Windows 8. And if I say Windows 8.1 update, that's the current update. Let's try this. The Windows 8.1 update is cumulative. So it includes all previously released security and non-security updates. It is large. It also requires that users be running Windows 8.1. If you're still running Windows 8, you'll need to do a two-step upgrade. So you're wondering, what's new? Well, you'll find two new buttons on what used to be called the Metro interface, Power and Search. The Search button is useless because the search function appears if you just start typing. You don't have to click anything. But for those who can't function without a button, I guess it serves a purpose. And the power button? Well, that saves you one mouse click, maybe. 
Most computers do still have power switches, and pushing the physical power button has the same effect. If you have trouble with the hot corners and you haven't yet figured out any other way to turn off the system, eh, the power button may provide a quick access to that function. Microsoft has perfected the process that allows users who really, really dislike the Metro interface to boot directly to the desktop, thereby eliminating the need to press the Windows key and D to get there. But wait, didn't they do that with Windows 8.1 and not the 8.1 update? Well, on the other hand, if you've grown used to booting to the start screen and you want to re-enable the feature, you can open the control panel and visit the taskbar and navigation properties section and re-enable the boot to the start menu. Users who could never figure out how to close a Metro app will be pleased to find minimize and close icons on Metro apps now. So now you can click close the application instead of using the old Windows standby of Alt F4. And about the name of the interface itself, I'm going to keep calling it Metro, but Microsoft does seem finally to have settled on a name for the former Metro or modern interface. They're calling it the area where the Windows Store apps run. Like I said, they have trouble naming things. For the easily confused and those folks who are unable to figure out how to get back to the desktop when they're running a Metro application, the taskbar is now available. Hover the mouse near the bottom of the screen when you're running a Metro app and the taskbar slides up by magic. The taskbar itself has been modified a bit so that Metro apps can be pinned there. In fact, the Windows 8 update automatically pins the Windows Store icon to the taskbar. Among the features that really do solve a problem is something that Windows 8 update does more slowly than Windows 8.1. Those with touch devices can swipe the charms panel in from the right, but Microsoft created hot corners so that the panel would be available on computers without touch screens. The problem is that users often need to place the mouse cursor near the corner of the screen to close an application that's running full screen, and that sometimes could trigger an unwanted display of the charms panel. Microsoft has slightly lengthened the hot corner delay so that the user who simply wants to close an application won't be bothered by the panel, but the delay is short enough that users shouldn't be annoyed by waiting if what they want is the charms panel. Oh, and of course the rumors continue. I keep hearing that Microsoft has plans to bring back a real start menu, and I have to wonder why. And apparently there is also some perceived great yearning to be able to run Metro interface apps on the desktop. So that feature is probably in the works, too. Both of these would be in place of new features that would actually be useful, and that would have some purpose other than mollifying the obstinate. For as much noise as Microsoft made about this update, I'm really not finding a lot here that's both new and useful. Well, there are features that are designed to placate the I hate Windows 8 crowd, but it seems that nothing is going to placate them. Actually, I'm probably being needlessly surly here. Microsoft says the Windows 8.1 update runs on a wider variety of devices. And for business users, the Windows 8.1 update includes features that improve the compatibility of Internet Explorer, extend policy settings for mobile device management, and more easily install first-party apps for easier deployments across businesses. Windows 8 has been a pretty tough sell in the corporate environment, so that might really help. Microsoft has been diligent in attempting to gain acceptance for Windows 8.1 from corporate information technology managers. Delivering the Windows 8.1 update through the standard Windows update process makes the IT manager's job easier. 
Additionally, the company is trying to make it easier for corporations to develop their own internal Metro applications by enabling sideloading as a feature of Windows 8.1 Pro. That would be enabled when a machine joins a corporate domain. So that was this month's Patch Tuesday. Tuesday was definitely an update day for more than just Windows. 2.1 gigabytes of Windows updates, about 1.5 gigabytes of Adobe Creative Cloud updates, more than 500 megabytes of Adobe Lightroom updates, smaller updates for Adobe Acrobat and Oracle Java, and nearly 1 gigabyte of Ubuntu updates. Because I was updating everything else, I decided it'd be a good time to upgrade Ubuntu, too. The version I was using was no longer supported, so I opted to update to version 13.10, that's Saucy Salamander. Before I could perform that update, Ubuntu needed to download and install about 200 megabytes of other updates that I'd missed along the way. The Windows download and update had completed in about 32 minutes, and the main part of the Ubuntu download and update also consumed about half an hour. In both cases, the updates ran without problems and ended successfully, with the exception of a driver problem under the Windows 8.1 update on one machine. Downloading and installing the current driver for the sound subsystem resolved that problem. In short circuits, two events this week are worth noting, but this program's already running a little long, so I'm going to combine these first two items as a single. Adobe has made Lightroom even more portable. In coming weeks, I'll tell you more about some exciting news from Adobe. Lightroom continues to stake out a larger share of photographic workflow, whether for amateurs or professionals. Unfortunately, the latest enhancements are now only for the Apple iPad. The other iOS device, the iPhone, will be the next target for development, and then Android devices. The new features make it possible to perform preliminary image culling and some basic editing on an iPad. And that includes editing camera RAW files. Those gigantic RAW files are represented on the tablet by much smaller proxies. So Photoshop-like editing isn't possible, and not all of Lightroom's editing functions are available either. But these new functions are going to be very welcome, and they certainly seem to change, once again, the way we work with photographs. If you own Lightroom 5 already, be sure to obtain the latest free update to version 5.4. And the second item, support for Windows XP has ended. There is no story here. This has been known for years. Some European governments are paying Microsoft millions for a few extra months of support, so apparently they didn't get the memo from several years ago. Move along here, folks. Nothing to see. Intel says it'll eliminate 1,500 jobs from its assembly operation in Costa Rica, but will continue to employ more than 1,200 engineers, finance, and human resource workers there. The company's been struggling in recent years because of the move towards smaller, portable computing devices. Intel is not well represented in that marketplace because most of the processors it creates are designed for notebook and desktop computers. Intel says it plans to relocate the assembly and test operations from Costa Rica to Asia, and that this is part of a plan announced earlier this year. 
The change is intended to improve what the company calls geographic closeness between plants and main markets. Intel has maintained a manufacturing presence in Costa Rica for 15 years. Officials of the country say they're sorry to see this component of the company's business leave, but they credit Intel with helping Costa Rica to develop itself as a competitive location for high-tech operations. As you probably already know, Microsoft wants Nokia's Device and Services division. It appears that Microsoft's plan to acquire that division is moving forward. The company started the $7.2 billion process last year and had hoped to complete it during the first quarter of this year. Well, that didn't happen, but the end is in sight. The U.S. Justice Department approved the purchase in December. Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Competition also added its permission The latest piece to fall into place is approval by Chinese regulators. Previously, the European Union and Japan's regulators had also approved the deal, as had Nokia's shareholders. The deal should now close this month. Microsoft also plans to license Nokia's mapping service for future versions of the Windows Phone. This deal is essentially an outgrowth of a relationship that began in 2011 and led to Nokia's development of the Lumia brand of smartphones. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website www.techbiter.com I'm Bill Blinn and if you'd like you can also send me a message from the website thanks for listening I look forward to talking with you again in a week